Hello, I'm Emily Grace, and welcome to the Stages podcast of Bernstein Private Wealth Management. Life throws lots of challenges at us. We're here to discuss them. Having helped families prioritize what makes money meaningful for them and then invest for that purpose for close to 20 years now, I've seen people through many markets and many life events. And while every market is different, what remains constant is the need for guidance and advice through all the uncertainty. Being able to help people navigate these markets and to be able to introduce them to some of the smartest investment minds and experts in other fields, whatever the stage in their life, is a real honor. If you or someone you know would like my advice or an introduction to my guest, you can reach me at emily.grace at bernstein.com. Today I've invited Chris John Carlo to join me on the stage. Chris, also known as Crypto Dad, rose to fame as chairman of the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission, where he addressed the Senate on the importance of cryptocurrency by invoking his children and speaking in plain terms. Since leaving the CFTC in July, he has joined the Board of Advisors for the Chamber of Digital Commerce, which advocates for digital assets in the blockchain industry. This month, he is also joining the law firm Wilkie Farn Gallagher as senior counsel. And what stood out in my mind, at least, is that, like me, he went to Skidmore College. Hey. Chris, thanks for joining me. Great to be with you. Great to, great to be with a fellow Skidmore alum. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So now, your former chair of the CFTC, what, what does that mean? Hmm. So um, I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with the CFTC's sister agency, the Securities and Exchange Commission, or the SEC. So the CFTC, as I say, is a sister agency to the SEC and, and, and similar in many regards. It's governed by a five-member commission, uh, all appointed by the president, with no more than three members from the president's own party. So they are bipartisan by okay. design. Um, and um, the, the chairman is also selected by the current president. So in a Republican administration, you'll have a Republican chair. In a Democrat administration, you'll have a Democrat chair. But otherwise, the commission is split between the two parties. Um, I had the rare privilege of being appointed by Barack Obama uh, to occupy a Republican seat on the commission, and I was unanimously confirmed by the Senate when no one knew me. And then two and a half years later, I was reappointed by President Trump to serve as chairman of the agency, and to my great surprise, I was unanimously confirmed again. Wow. Which either proved that no one knows in Washington <laughs> what the CFTC does, or that I hadn't annoyed enough politicians during my first two and a half years. Had that ever happened before? Pretty rare in this administration, yes. I might say. Yes. Um, a few of the uh, current administration's nominees have received a unanimous confirmation. So it's something I, I'm quite proud wow. of. But it also speaks to my approach, which was to, uh, you know, I spent 35 years in business, and uh, my approach is pretty nonpartisan. My focus was on uh, markets and not politics. And I went to Washington to do one job, serve at the commission, and one job only. Uh, and so when my term ended after five years, uh, I departed uh, last summer in July of uh, of 2019, and I've recome back to the New York business community. So, um, but what does the CFTC do? So, as I said, it's a sister agency to the SEC. The SEC, again, as most of your listeners know, oversees markets for capital formation, capital transfer. That is, someone with a business opportunity that's looking for capital can meet people that have capital are looking for a business opportunity yes. and exchange capital and help that business opportunity thrive. That's not what the CFTC does. The CFTC over, oversees markets for risk transfer. Okay. That is enterprises with risk, price risk. 
um, climate risk, other risks in their enterprise that are unwilling or unable to bear that risk can transfer that risk to those who are better able to bear it. So what does that mean? Just take a simple farmer. A farmer plants in the spring, reaps in the fall, and in the spring, they may be aware of what the current price is for what they're going to reap in the fall, but what they don't know is what that price will be in the fall. But they do know what may be the cost of gasoline for their tractor, the cost of seed, the uh, cost of irrigation, the cost of fertilization. So they have a lot of fixed costs, but what they don't know is what they'll, what they'll sell for. But they can, that's, so that's risk to their enterprise. They can hedge that risk, they can limit that risk by entering into futures markets for wheat, soybeans, corn, other commodities. Same applies in the energy markets. Drillers of oil may know what their cost of getting it out of the ground is, but what they don't know is what it's gonna trade for in the market. Later on, or gold. Or gold, or, or, or interest rates, okay. or credit rates. So a whole range of not just commodity, but financial prices and indices, which are constantly changing or volatile, can be, can be leveled out. The volatility can be reduced by market participants. So what does that mean for your average listener? Well, the reason why in the United States our standard home ownership tool is a 30-year fixed rate mortgage yes. only exists because of these risk hedging markets. There's no way that interest rates are going to stay stable for 30 years. Whoever lends at a fixed rate is taking the risk of rates changing over that period of time. And they can hedge that risk in these interest rate futures markets overseen by the CFTC in order to enable homeowners to have a fixed rate. The stability that exists in our Western society, whether it's in terms of car payments, home ownership payments, the cost of, of groceries in the, in the store, exists because of these hedging markets. As Americans, when we enter the grocery store, we never stop as we go through those sliding doors and say, gosh, I wonder if there'll be fresh vegetables on the shelf. Right, I wonder if I can get milk today. Uh, we never ask that question. But in the developing world, if there's a good harvest, there'll be food on the shelves. But if there's a bad harvest, there'll be no food on the shelves. And worse, there'll be no food on the shelves next year, even if the weather is good, because the growers will have gone bankrupt because they won't be able to get their price this year for their produce. We wow. get stability in our Western world, stability in home ownership, stability in, in And so asset how ownership. does the CFTC do that? So the CFTC is the regulator of these markets in the same way that the SEC oversees yep. our stock exchanges, the CFTC oversees our futures exchanges, exchanges like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, yep. the Chicago Board Options Exchange, the New York Mercantile Exchange, the Intercontinental Exchange are all overseen by the CFTC and interestingly, so is the London Clearinghouse, which is the clearinghouse for the most of the world's interest rate swaps, oh, are also overseen by the CFTC. So uh, one of the differences between the CFTC and the SEC is the CFTC really has a global brief. Okay. It's, it, it is, so the United States is the only developed economy in the world that has two market regulators, not one, the SEC for capital markets and the CFTC for derivative markets or risk hedging markets. Now our markets are the biggest in the world and the, the two agencies operate through different principles. Yes. And it's a very smart thing that our founders of this structure did because it allows our two agencies to much, be much more specialized. To really focus where they're supposed really to. Focus. And I think there, there, there's a reason why the United States risk hedging markets are the world's biggest. The world hedges its oil production world uh, risk around the world 
in Chicago and yes. in New York. The world hedges its commodity, its gold, its cotton prices, its corn prices in Chicago, I, I believe in a large part because of the quality of the regulation that comes out of the CFTC. What, what you were doing. What I had the, <laughs> I had the privilege to do and serve my country doing. So it was a great honor, uh, delighted by the experience, and uh, but pleased to be back into the New York business community. Of course, and thinking a lot about sort of cryptocurrency and all of that. So how exactly is it that cryptocurrency is different than blockchain? Like what are they and how are they different? Oh gosh. Or yeah. how are they the same? Yeah, in some ways they're the same, in some ways they're different. So, so um, the most famous cryptocurrency is called Bitcoin. And Bitcoin was actually a way, it was designed to be a way to compensate um, uh, individuals for helping to build the blockchain. And the blockchain is basically a set of ledgers that can communicate with each other and can be validated not by a central validator, but by a community of validators. So let me break this down a little okay. bit. I, I would guess that most of your listeners know how Wikipedia works. Yes. So, so when we were kids, we grew up with encyclopedias, right? We had whole shelves of them. Oh, my mother, I think she paid $12 <laughs> a month, whatever it was, and yes. we got the Encyclopedia Britannica. And that was the, the authority for all information, right? It was a central authority for what was true and what was false. At that point in time. That point in time. And to access that central authority, one paid the central authority for compiling that encyclopedia. You either subscribed for it or went to the library, which paid for yeah. it. But, but a central authority, in a sense, governed that information and charged for that information. That's not how Wikipedia works. Wikipedia is a completely different principle. Wikipedia says that if you ask enough people on this world who was Sir Thomas More, you'll eventually get to the right answer because the experts will speak and other experts will verify, yeah, that information is correct. Crowdsourcing. Crowdsourcing. And that's what Wikipedia operates yes. on. So instead of having a central authority, you have a crowdsourced authority. Okay. Blockchain takes the same concept and applies it to information. So, the, so, so um, uh, let's say that we want to verify who owns the mortgage on your property. Blockchain would be a way of everybody who's ever touched that mortgage, the original originator, and then whoever securitized, whoever sold it, to verify where it is today. So instead of having a central authority, um, a record keeper, and we have many of them in our financial system, or we have several of them, this would be a system by which all market participants in the financial system verify where different assets are. And if you apply it across any type of, of record, whether it be birth certificates, whether it be home ownership, the notion of a crowdsourced um, identification yes. of ownership, of value, of chain of title, as opposed to a central authority, is what the blockchain is. And a, a, a person or a group of people operating under the name Satoshi Nakamoto came up with a paper in, I think it was 2008, um, calling for the notion of decentralized value identification, okay. the blockchain. And he thought, wow, this would be something really cool to build. Now, how do we build it? Well, we can go out and get somebody to build it. We can hire a consultant or a yeah. technology company, but then we'd be back to a central authority. Right, to own somebody else to, having to, to control build of it. So how do we get 
the crowd to build it. Yes. Why would the crowd be interested in building it? Well, we need to compensate them somehow. Well, we could have somebody write checks, but what do we, we're back once again to a central authority. What if we have a way that everybody can participate in basically a contest and whoever wins the contest can p- build a piece of the blockchain and we'll give them some reward. Okay. And that's how Bitcoin was developed. Every 12 minutes, yes. um, there is a, a new contest to solve a mathematical equation that is solvable but complicated to solve. It can be done by computer. The first to win that contest gets the right to build another element of the blockchain in return for which they're paid in an instrument called Bitcoin. Hence the birth of Bitcoin as a crypto asset that is generated as compensation for building the blockchain. So you can't really separate the original, the first cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, yes. from the creation of the first, what's called a, what's called distributed ledger technology, the first one called blockchain. The two of them go hand in hand, which is one of the points I made during that hearing that you mentioned in the Senate, where I was explaining to senators um, that that you, you, you can't say that you are favorable to blockchain technology, but not favorable to crypto assets because they go hand in hand. Yes, they're so interconnected. They're so interconnected. But I guess how then, if we're talking about using Bitcoin and cryptocurrency to compensate people for things on the blockchain, how is it then that we're talking today about you know law firms taking cryptocurrency, right. taking payment in cryptocurrency? Or like, can you buy other things with cryptocurrency? Like what, can I buy it? Can I go in and buy my new iPhone so with there's, cryptocurrency? There's, so we, we, the important thing to say is I think we're going into an entirely new world here. So this, I think the digitization of value, this has been called, so the first phase of the digitization of our world yes. began with the internet and that was the digitization of information. Yes. That was the creation of Wikipedia Correct. or Amazon, right? Uh, and interestingly, the first Amazon product was books. Yes. So you think about the first wave of the internet, which we've now gotten used to, was the, inform- was the digitization of information. The new wave that we're facing right now is the digitization of things of value. And it's, it's a potentially transformational change. I think we're gonna look back and see it as as big of a change as the first wave of the internet is, this is going to be as and, big or bigger. Okay. And we're very much in the early stages. It's almost like we just bought the Louisiana Purchase and now we're sending out Lewis and Clark to explore it. And there's still vast amounts to understand. Now there's many intrepid souls that are running out into this new territory, exploring it, coming back. And, and, and it's exciting, and, and, and for young people, I think it's one of the most interesting areas. But like any type of you know, new Western expansion, it comes with its share of, of schemers and fakers and, 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 yeah. and traps and, 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 and areas of, uh, of danger. Um, but it also comes with um, uh, excitement and, and, and courage and, and creativity. So um, I think it's a very exciting time. It's really it's fascinating to think about because the internet really did transform everything. My children are not going to know a world where you sit around arguing a ridiculous fact <laughs> for hours and never know who was right or who was wrong. Yes, right. Because you know? the, the and whether the Wikipedia is right or not, the answer is what the crowd thinks. It's thinks. almost like it's a vote. Yes, uh, and so. It's a different approach, um, but it is the approach that socially 
we've come to accept. And I think there's a lot of merit to it. And so the idea is that sort of currency as we know it yep. will be gone. And will it be sort of one universal cryptocurrency or sort of the way we have the dollar and the yen and the, you know, uh, the euro yep. and sort of all of that now? Will it be, you know, Eurethra and Bitcoin, you know, and... Well, so, so if, if, if I did, I've done some research on this. If you look at human history, for the most part throughout human history, with the exception of actually the last two or three generations, the world's been dominated by multiple different currencies. Yes. If, you, if you look at the European exploration of North America, there were many currencies that were utilized along the Spanish main and you know, in, in the early uh, uh, country. And in the first hundred years of the United States, States minted their own coinage. Um, uh, corporations and companies and railroads had different coinage. So, so the, the generation that you and I grew up and our parents grew up in of really where the, the dollar was dominant in North America yes. is kind of a rarity in human history. It's actually kind of interesting if you go even deeper into that. During that period of exploration, while there were multiple currencies, there was one that was considered slightly superior to the other. And it was a dollar, but it wasn't the U.S. dollar. It was the Spanish dollar. And the Spanish dollar was considered the, the, the optimal currency because it had actually a technological advantage of the others. Because the Spanish used New World silver, silver, which was purer than the silver that had been used, the coinage was actually lighter than other coinage. So whether it was in your, your, your trunk or in your yeah. pocket, it was lighter, but it had another advantage it could be easily broken into eight pieces, known as pieces of eight. Okay. And so it could be fractionalized in a way that otherwise one coin could, could not, not be. be. Could not be. And that was a technological advantage. And one of the advantages that our people are claiming for, for the digital uh, currency is the ability to fractionalize it infinitesimally down to small parts. And so uh, uh, coinage or, or a currency has always competed amongst each other and technological advantages are historically important. And I think we are going into a world where the dollar may be less ubiquitous and, le and we may have multiple currencies as has been common in human history. And I think that some of these new cryptocurrencies will play a role in that. So I think you could see a, a world of multiplicity of digital currencies for some time. Okay, and do you think that, I mean, it sounds to me, does it sound, is the government gonna try to limit this? Well, so, I, um, you know, I, I'm a proponent for the digitization of the dollar. And, yes. and a few months ago, I did a Wall Street Journal op-ed calling for the digital dollar. And I cited the Chinese government's announcement of their development of a digital yuan and Facebook's announcement of their Libra project as kind of a Sputnik moment for the United States. The United States has enjoyed the dollar as the world's premier reserve currency now going back to the end of the Second World War. And perhaps we may be resting on our laurels. As the world is digitizing, we cannot keep the dollar as an analog instrument in a digital world. The time has come to think about and start planning for uh, to digitize the dollar, to keep pace with those competitors to the dollar's dominance, nation states, whether they be China, whether they be the EU, others, but also we need to think about commercial ventures that are also looking to um, replace the dollar because what they want to do is access to the data of how we all spend. And, and one of the reasons why the United States is the right offerer of a, if a digital currency is because only the United States, unlike other countries and other like commercial entities, is prohibited from mining the data 
by our Constitution, which limits the federal government from taking property without due process, without just compensation. China, by, by the way, will not be limited in taking data of everybody that uses the yuan, and, and certainly Facebook is very interested in that data as well, as <laughs> we well know. Data, yes, of course. And so we're really talking about a revisioning of our entire currency. Absolutely. But, you know, if you think about it, the original currency was in was physical, was coinage, yes. right? Well, then we came up with a variant of that yeah. called paper. Yes. And the digitization, I would view, is just another variant of that as we move forward into a digital world. Because right. I suppose that credit cards and Apple Pay and all of that and Venmo are still off the paper currency, yeah. in a sense. Like, we would... The, the layperson like me might think that was sort of the next step, right? We right. went to the credit card and, ooh, aren't I fancy? I use Venmo right. or well, Apple Pay. Let's take Pay. Venmo, for example, but Emily. Let's remember where we started. We started with the whole notion of this digitization is to get away from a central authority that verifies it. Yes. Well, that's exactly what Venmo is. Yes. So when you upload to Venmo money, yes. if, if Venmo were to disappear from the face of the earth, so would your money. Yes. The notion about a digital dollar is it would be blockchain-based. Right. So that it would not disappear. The federal government would be the ultimate authority for that. Over all of that. So I guess it gets to, is it safe and can it be stolen? Right. There's that story that keeps going on. I think they now want to exhume his body, yeah. right, yeah. of the the cryptocurrency founder who, who died with the only password to, you know, like $160 million to... And actually, I'm calling it dollars, but is it dollars? I guess it's the equivalent, the equivalent of conversion into, yeah. converting it back. And so, like, is it is it safe? Well, that sounds... Yeah, again, yeah. we are in early, early, early days right now. Yes. And I'll, I'll leave it to experts like you as to what to advise your client, how to right. diver diversify their portfolio. Uh, I My policy is, since I'm an advocate for digitization of currency, not to hold uh, cryptocurrencies, okay. uh, but as I explained in my... Uh, Senate testimony, members of my family do and do believe in it. Um, uh, and I do believe in it, but I'm not sure as a, as a, as a wealth uh, uh, planning tool it's appropriate. Um, uh, but we think that blockchain is very interesting. And looking at the companies that are using blockchain is, is, very, is a great place to be looking. Well, I'll go so far as to say that I'm ready to predict that our children will be do using digital assets um, during their lifetime as a medium of, of, of both exchange, uh, of, of savings, of, of uh, a holding of assets. Um, I believe that, that if you look into the horizon, that's just as everything else has been digitized. Yes. That will be digitized as well. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a journey to get there, and we're still on the very early stages of it. And I think you've even talked about, in all likelihood, not to kill myself off right now, but <laughs> assuming that I get to live a, well, I'm tempting the fates now, sorry, everyone, but assuming I get to live a very, very long life, that there is a good chance that my will will be probated through blockchain rather than through courts and executors. Exactly. Self self-executing. I mean we we're we're talking about an age of and and we're already seeing now a digitized contracts what they call smart contracts that can um, uh, uh, make payments when payments are due under the contracts, that can do other interest rate adjustments automatically. And I think it's only a matter of time before um, uh, trust and probate instruments also become con uh, 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 digitized and self-executing instruments. And I think we're seeing that throughout the value chain. This is what I call this digitization of okay. value. Transfers of value will become 
self-executing and automated. It's fascinating, right? That you talked about this going from the information to the value, that that's really the next stage of yeah. it. And you know, it's like all these innovations, you know, they, they're here before you know it. They, they look far off on the horizon and then you go three or four years, you get involved in life and all the things that life has and suddenly you wake up one day and you realize it's happening. <laughs> that it's there, you know, and you've been left behind yeah. if you're not paying attention well, exactly and thinking right. about it. Now, we talked a little bit about sort of it being, you know, it's value vis-a-vis the dollar when I said sort of the $160 million. Like, why does its value change so much? Why does it fluctuate so dramatically? It's volatile. Um, it, it's subject to um, uh, the latest new, like like other volatile assets. You know, volatility in markets is not um, unusual. You know, at, at the CFTC, we oversaw what's called the VIX index, um, yep. um, uh, the volatility say, index. We focus on that a lot like, here. Of course you do, right? <laughs> That's a volatile instrument. There's yeah. there's many volatile asset classes in markets, and, and, and Bitcoin certainly is one of them. But its volatility is not um, uh, unusually unique. It's a new asset class. It's an enthusiast market for the most part. Um, and I think that affects its volatility. Its volatility, though, has been moderated somewhat by the launch of Bitcoin futures, yes. which took place during my I term say you did that, at the correct? CFTC. We, we oversaw that, and it's brought, it's brought greater stability and it's brought institutional interest into the marketplace, which has helped, I think, minimize some of the volatility in the market. And it's, it's part of the maturization. Every, every commodity asset class matures through the launch of a futures product at some point along yes. its life stream. It's, it's great. Now, in one word, what do you see as the future of cryptocurrency? I would say dollar, the dollar. I, I think that the, do- the world still needs a standard. You know, yeah. we, we don't have a gold standard anymore. We need a standard by which all other items of value, whether they be a house, whether they be a foreign currency, whether they be a government-issued bond, is set a benchmark and the dollar has served for 70 years now as a global benchmark and i think that that, that's why i call for a digital dollar because a digital benchmark will serve the world's purposes for a a common standard so i would say the future of cryptocurrency is a digital dollar the digital dollar is really maintaining that okay well Crypto Dad, or should I say, Chris John Carlo, thank you for taking the time to speak it, with us today. This has been today. so much fun, Emily. I mean, you really you take something that's very that seems very complicated and manage to distill it down to really those those few key points that we need to think about because it's really easy to think about cryptocurrency and blockchain as something in the future, and there's no need for me to think about it today or pay attention. You know, much like maybe how some of us think about retirement planning <laughs> later, later, later. But, you know, like many priorities in life, really thinking about it today is crucial. It is. It and, is. And so thank you for joining me and, it, and the listeners pleasure. of Stages. Now, if you'd like to speak with me, my family engagement team, or one of my senior investment strategists, you can reach me at emily.grace at Bernstein.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Have a great day.